Welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over a 100 years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is The Sound of the Hound. So welcome to this episode of The Sound of the Hound. Do you want your questions? I've got my questions here. It's Dave Holly. Have, have you got a piece of paper with answers on them? <laughs> well, hopefully you're going to fill oh, them. no. So I'm Dave Holly. And it's you James, are, James Hall. And we have a special guest today. James. Very special guest, Mr. Giles Martin. Hello, Giles. Hello, James. Hello, Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us onto your podcast. No, we've invited you. Thank you for attending our podcast. What I'd say is slightly intimidating because we've come out to Giles's recording studio out in the, the distant part of England that I thought was in Somerset and turns out not to be. I brought my very small recording equipment and I feel slightly emasculated next to your very big recording equipment. It's not the size, Dave. It's what you do with it. That's the, that's the key <laughs> with, when it comes to recording equipment. We're only. sitting in the most incredible... <laughs> How would one describe? Well, it, it well it's, it's brand new, state of the art, beautiful acoustics, really nice layout and design. It, it's relatively new, is it? It's very new, yeah. And this is a Dolby Atmos room. It's fully immersive audio, and there's a lot of inroads into that field right now. So this room's this is it's funny. Here we are in the middle of nowhere, and uh, one of the guys from the speed company came. So what do you think? He goes, I think you'll have one of the best Dolby Atmos rooms in Europe. I was like, <laughs> yeah. what in this farm? <laughs> no one will know about it. It's like a, you know, it's great. It's a, it's, a, it's a great room. And well, it's we, beautiful. There's a res, a residential cottages and a, a kind of hangout area that we can see through the control What, what listeners, what you need to understand is Dave and I have been recording episodes to date in his sitting room in Ballum with a, with a duvet hung, hanging over a, a door. So this to is try and weird. damp it down a little bit. We can bit. hang a duvet in here <laughs> if you want. It's, it's, okay. so, it's so damped down the sound in here, isn't it? It's perfect. It's such a treat. Yeah. But Giles, brilliant music producer, has done so many... Beatles-related projects, but but others too. I was reading you used to be involved with Cooler Shaker. And I did, yeah, it, I signed Cooler Shaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they're underrated. You? Yeah. I, well, I yeah, I had a I had a funny um, history with them. Yeah, they were they were they were they were a really good band. I'll tell you the thing about um, a thing about bands like that is that uh, together they just sounded great. And it was one of those things where you get four people together and they make a good sound. They're not necessarily brilliant musicians. I mean, they were pretty good, but not as good as the four of them sounded. And that's what makes a great band. And yeah. that's what Cooler Shaker had. Yeah, they were fun. They were nice guys. They just have imploded a little bit, but they were, it, was, it was a laugh. Early 90s. Early 90s. He was on the Prodigy, on the Fat of the Land album, I remember the other day, Crispin Mills. What, as a, do, doing some gone. sort of Indian, some sort of, um, sort of Hindi religious... He's chanting. a sweet guy, actually, Crispin. He lives down, he lives down, uh, down the road. He lives down in, in Bath, actually. Down here, yeah, yeah. down west. How, down how west. did you sign him? Were, were you working I was no, no, I was approached by someone called Guy Holmes. Oh yes, um, who was head of who was had a had a uh, who was I still see Guy. He's kind of he's a character. He's as wide as you like, and uh, you know he was like a lot of people. He he was actually very kind. He sort of said, "I really believe in you," and and uh, they were called the K's then. And he was looking for a, a band. And first, if I knew Crispin, I, I didn't realize until later, but he was at school with me. Um, but 
I saw them play at, I think, the Monarch or something like that in Camden and said to Guy, I think they're really good, and we signed them. And then, uh, and then funny enough, he dropped them, and they, we signed them to, to, to Sony. And then they exploded. And then they yeah. had the number one album, yeah. <laughs> and I, was, I really wanted to produce them. I was, and I started working them on their songs and arrangements and did a lot of their arrangements and songs with them yeah. in a rehearsal room. And then they had the opportunity to work with John Leckie, and I was no one. So they worked with John Leckie. I was always slightly bitter. And then they came the sac- second album. They asked whether I'd go and do the same thing with them. I was like, no. We, we, well, luckily, it bombed completely. Yeah, but that's not lucky for them. But yeah, I did. I did. Um, so, oh, sorry. Of course, uh, yeah, it's not no, lucky. Not yeah, lucky. Exactly, <laughs> lucky. Yeah, yeah, it makes me sound like a genius. <laughs> but that's not the point. Yeah, unluckily. <laughs> I think we've got to move on to the, the podcast. Moving swiftly. So, so. A lot of the tales that we've been telling in the, this series, the last series of um, the Gramophone Company, what's kind of been revealed to us is the importance that families have played in the, the development of the Gramophone Company then into EMI. So you've got the person who invented the Gramophone was Emil Berliner, and yep. his brother set up, Joseph, he set up Deutsche Gramophone in Germany, that little record label. You've got Fred Geisberg, who's the, the kind of first A&R man and producer. Yeah. His brother, Will, followed him in into the business. We found a story, a guy that would have worked with your dad. There was a guy called George Dillner who worked, joined the gramophone company 1899 and worked until the 1940s. And his son, Francis Dillner, started working in the 1940s and worked at Abbey Road till the 80s. Do you, oh. do, do you did you know Francis at all? Or? No, I no, I I don't. I should lie and say yes, shouldn't I? Yeah, oh, yes. Oh, Frank, yeah, for them. <laughs> good old yeah. Frank. But but I, I, it's probably the most famous. I know you're not an employee of EMI, but you're so deeply connected to it, and your father I was. Am. I and, feel like yeah. I feel like I am. Um, yeah, it's. I suppose it it becomes one of those things where it's such an unusual thing to do to go to recording studios to work. You know, it really is and. And they're kind of strange places. And, you know, with me growing up, I started running around air studios in Oxford Circus from the age of about two or three. I remember, you know, they had a hot chocolate machine at the end of the corridor. You know, you remember certain yeah, things, important it. things about studios. Yeah. And, you know, it's been, I mean, listen, my relationship between myself and my father is, is well documented, but he, he was very discouraging about me going to the industry, but he started losing his hearing. So, and he didn't want to tell anyone. So, I would, he would ask me to come to a session so I could hear for him. And he'd tell me what he could, he was missing in the frequency range. And, and that you sort of imbibe, and he was a, my dad was a lovely man and, and an interesting and an interested man in lots of things. And he would be interested in the history of recording and talk about that and talk about, and so it's sort of, it's sort of, it is, I, I guess it's passed down from generation to generation. It's an interesting thing. I mean, my, um, I remember working on a ranger called Graham Prescott, a lovely man, and we went to the pub after doing a session. He goes, you know one thing I can't start the music, music industry, Charles? He goes, it's, it's bloody nepotism. <laughs> and I went, I went, yeah, I was just talking to my dad about that. Went, oh, no, sorry, mate. I didn't mean you. Not I you. didn't mean, yeah. And actually, it was a big compliment, <laughs> but it's quite funny. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I suppose... What was it like? I, my, my dad was a teacher. And I remember running around the school before I was old enough to go to school and finding out a magical, interesting place. And I remember things like biscuit tins and hot chocolate machines. Oh, yeah. So what, what do you remember? Yeah. Yeah, I, think, I think it's a sort of, it's a double-edged sword because I remember working, I worked as a runner at Air Studios in Oxford Circus in 1988. And I remember just thinking, I said to people, I remember just thinking, if only I could get my name as an assistant engineer as a tape-up, that was, was in those mm. days, on an album. I remember I sort of assisted on a then Jericho record, but I was kind of making sandwiches. And 
and the the and but I was I was just basically get buying them grapes from Oxford Circus. I think they were on some sort of weird drug and grape diet. That's at that stage in the eighties, and 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 you just think if only I could get my name on a record, then I then I'll be then I'll be fine. And of course, it kind of eventually happens. But then doesn't mean the thing is like you don't think about if only I could win a Grammy, you know, you don't think. And then I was kind of what do you do with it now? Where do you put it? You know, and you know, don't put it anywhere. It's that sort of thing you get. I and know, I suppose, you do need to know where have you put your Grammy? Is it you, oh, one know. or more than one? No, I've got two. Yeah, yeah, they're um, no, they're in. A, I don't know. They're they're, in a, they're on top of a. They're not on display anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what you. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's one of those. But you know, it's because the great thing about about. You suddenly realize the most important thing, the most exciting thing about studios is actually the recording and the music and what goes on and and just the fact that there's all this technology around you like we have right now. But what's exciting is just the fact that air moves and you capture it. And it's to do with passion and heart and and all of those things that that's what that's what we're into. And the rest of it doesn't make any difference. It's it's how everything makes you feel is what's important. And whether you have a Grammy or or your name written on the back of a record doesn't actually make, make a difference at all. I love that air moves and you capture it. That's brilliant. I mean, that's that's what sound is, isn't it? That's what yeah. sound is. Yeah. yeah, it's just a bunch of frequencies that make sense as music. Because we think we think of audio geeks as a kind of modern phenomenon, don't we? Really, with all the technology. But but I mean, these original people were audio geeks extraordinaire in their own right i mean they didn't have electricity and they didn't have microphones but they they were sort of sonic pioneers yeah what do you what do you think it must have felt like to to capture sound for the first time oh i think it must have been extraordinary and i think we don't i I think we don't really appreciate how recent it was yeah i mean just the whole concept of um of of you know, photographs were around for you know, picture was around for way way longer than sound was. Yeah, that just the idea it must have been really creepy to suddenly have a replication of a, of someone speaking, not live. The idea for us, the idea for us to get our heads around the fact that if you want to listen to music, the only way you can listen to it is by either playing it or hear someone play it in the room with you. In the room yeah. with you. That was the at only that way. time. At that's that time, the, that's the thing. And yeah. and. And it's it's in history. It's not that long ago. It must no. have been changed. And the way my dad used to explain this, the this thing I'm trying to explain to people right now, as far as the recording process goes, you know, at, at the four, when he would, when he started working in studios, the whole intent was to was to create a facsimile, a replica of what someone's doing. Me talking in a room should be me talking in a room, and that's and they try to get as close as they could. But with microphones and recording techniques in the sixties, they achieved that. You know, it's the rest of it is just, and then then they thought, okay, it's a bit like I tell it to kids, it's a bit like Instagram. It's like you have a photograph, and then the next thing is we now have a photograph, and they all look real. So when now you start putting colours on it, that's how recording developed in the sixties and seventies. It's it's basically Instagram filters for music, and so the forefront of recording must have been just exciting, and that that drive to get better. And that's the thing that we're all all trying to do. All us. It's not even audio geeks. It's a combination of physics and music and yeah. passion. You know, yeah. that's what it is. And it's just that drive to try and get better with things. Try, try, try and think, well, how's your recording? It's not as good as, you know, not as good as mine. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Do all the engineers do that? Do they sit and compare recordings from the sonic quality rather than the... Have you ever sat around a pub table with other... <laughs> No, I think, a, I think I think it depends. There's a lot of mutual appreciation. We also, you know, you know, 
you know, I'm now involved in speakers and, and have a team of people, you know, that, that, that at the other end of it, you know, I can sit with Nigel Godrich and Spike Stanton, Manny Marikin, and, and we all use different speech, different monitors. And yet we all really appreciate what each other does. There's not like anyone's rights. There's not, there's not a, I remember a friend of mine called Chris, Chris Sheldon, who's a great engineer producer. He once said to me years ago, he goes, you know, once you learn how, once you learn how to make things sound good, it gets kind of boring. <laughs> he said to me, because there is a level and then you think yeah. of what else can you do? And, and, uh, and that sounds like an, it's not really an arrogant thing to say. It's like, what can you do to make a difference? Yeah. I guess part of it is, is conjuring the work out of the people who are doing the creating part of your well, role. Well, as a producer, yeah. Most, most of the, most of the things you expect, you know, I work with engineers a lot. I mean, I can engineer, but I work with engineers a lot. And part of my job is to, you know, you don't want a singer to appear in the studios or a guitarist to appear in the studios and then play much better later on in the day when they've gone home or yeah. sing much better so, in the shower. You want them to feel as though they're on top of the world. And also if they're having a hard time, you've got to talk them down, you know, off the, off the ledge as it were. You know, I did a, I did a project which came out last year called Rocket Man, which was a, an Elton John biopic. I love that, in and case I, we hadn't heard of it. Yeah. I know, <laughs> extremely successful. This, small, this little John. film that was a huge and to, hit. And I had to work and train Taron to be Elton. That yeah. was, that was we, so we started six months before shooting. And we had a relationship. And some days were tough. Yeah. Um, especially, I mean, the, the strains on an actor... It's, you know, you, I mean, who'd be an actor? Seriously, you know, he'd be up at six in the morning for a costume fitting and then come to the studios to have an hour and a half in the studios. Eventually I said, listen, we need more time. Yeah. But, you know, there'd be days where he was, you know, and you, it's that, it's, most of it is psychology. And is it, that's obviously a very technical thing you were trying to teach him. Was it yeah. to sing? To, to sing in to, the same to sing, style? To sing in the same style Elton, as Elton. How, how on earth do you even describe well, how it's, Elton Well, it's not telling you, you have to notice the way it's the same as that. We all speak differently. We all have different rhythm yeah. to what we do. And like musicians do. I mean, if you take a drummer like Stuart Copeland or Dave Grohl, who, who to me are similar because even though they play in time, they feel like they're, they're pushing the beat. They feel like they are want to get to the next place, which makes their drawing very exciting. If you take someone like Jim Keltner or Ringo or even John Bonham, they're a drummer. Even though, again, they're in time, they, they feel like they're playing behind the beat slightly. How interesting. And so, and so singers have their own thing. The thing about Elton, and you, and you don't notice it until you start noticing it. Yeah, the thing yeah. about Elton, Elton's phrasing is brilliant. His actual timing, timing is really, really good. And he sings very short words. Most people over-sing now. Most people, X Factor, and yeah. they just, they just over-sing. Extending and, a word. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it all becomes about the vowels, not the consonants. Yeah. What makes a great singer is the consonants, not the vowels. And, and that is a fantastic line. And, yeah. it's, and it's, but it's, that's the, and so with someone like, uh, working with Taron is that, you know, lucky Elton would send me all of the original multi-tracks and I'd listen to them and, and, and we wouldn't, because it's a film and it was very much a musical opposed to, I hate to say, it's not like Bohemian Rhapsody is much easier because you have concert footage. Yeah. yeah. With Rocket Man, they wanted all the music to be part of the story. So we have, we have one concert, but even then he goes up in the air on a, on a you know, <laughs> yeah. during, during Crocodile Rock. So it's that thing about how do I make people, and also that I spoke to Dexter, who's my mate, who's the director, and we were like, how do we get from, there's nothing worse about than a musical and go, here comes the song. It's got to go, the spoken word has got to be the same as the, as the, as the song voice. You can't mm. suddenly go, Hank, when you start singing. It's all this stuff. And it, it's, it's, it is technical, but it doesn't seem technical. Yeah, It's yeah. like noticing stuff. It's like, you know, you know, okay, 
I notice the fact that, you know, I may, I may look like I'm lumbering when I walk. Oh, that's quite technical. Now, that's what you look like. Yeah, it's the same yeah. with a voice. You hear it and you go, that's what it, it maybe it is. I, I don't think it's technical. I think it's just hu- noticing human Nursing nature. Human. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just interested in the line because you said before with, you, with your dad that you came in and sort of described a sound to him. And again, almost with talk, working with um, the, yeah, the guy at the act, we. <laughs> It's difficult describing sound sometimes. Yeah, with no, with my dad, it would more to be more to do with the fact that you know my it, my dad was obviously he was a, a brilliant musician, but he would be very aware of his own disability um, with his hearing loss, and so we'd we'd sit by a piano and he'd tell me what he couldn't hear anymore, you know, oh, and wow. what notes he couldn't hear, and then you know I'd have to listen out especially for the violins, the top line, the violins, and have the score and all that sort of stuff. And you learn, you learn from, you learn how to listen. There's a difference between you know hearing and listening. That's the thing. Mm. And so I now have a strange. I don't have much ability, but one ability I have, I can hear in frequencies. I can literally, you know, you know, with with Sonos, for instance, and the work I do with the speakers, I can literally listen to a speaker and go we need to reduce six kilohertz at one db and we need to do this and this because it's just for me it's just a bunch of colors now i can't do that i don't do that in more day-to-day life there's part of my brain that can switch and do that because i'm so used to being able to hear frequencies and i find frequencies interesting i know it sounds ridiculous but to your <laughs> listeners out there you have they all say different things to me you know like you know you have you, and, and it's from doing like the love show in Vegas where you have huge, you know, 7,000 speakers in a room and they're all doing things. Now I could have, the, I feel like God and you have this thing and you yeah. go, I know that for instance, like anything up to about a hundred Hertz is going to make you feel unpleasant and make your stomach rumble. You get to 200 Hertz. It's that pump in your chest. You get at rock concerts and then you get to 500 Hertz. It's like most of us are 500 Hertz thing. And then one kilohertz is a hank, that horrible microphonic sound. Two and a half kilohertz is a baby crying. It's really irritating to us human beings. And it goes up and it, you, they're all, and all that sound is, is a bunch of frequencies. That's all it is. All music is, is frequencies that have harmony and make sense. And so, and so once you stick, and then that sounds incredibly dispassionate, but what makes a difference is the fact that how that all makes us feel. And that's the most important thing. That's, yeah. Dispassion is not, I mean, dispassion isn't necessarily bad though, is it? No, this is the interesting, no, dispassion. Well, dispassion can be bad. I it think, can I be, think. but it doesn't, you know, I it's think not always. That, I think that, I think the funny thing is, despite being so, I've become so dull and technical in my work that I, I do, I'm really happy for things to be completely out of tune, out of time, and sound terrible. However, part of, part of my job is to make things sound good. Yeah. A good example is when, when I was doing the Love album years ago, um, I mixed on the Walrus in Studio 3 at Abbey Road and just thought, this sounds great. I listened to the original. The original Behind the Walrus sounds terrible. It's kind of mono and stereo. It goes out of phase. It's distorted. But it just feels amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And you go, wait a second, me, me by making this song sound good has actually made it worse. It's actually taken something yeah. Can I just link back to just, just so that just something actually you said to me a few years ago when I interviewed you? I did a Telegraph piece about the yeah, plaque yeah. unveiling. And we we're trying to link the studio Maiden Lane, which listeners will know, with your dad. And, and you said, you said, without these guys, so Fred and, and the early pioneers, Abbey Road wouldn't have existed because they opened it 30 years after. And Fred was um, involved in designing that. And Fred was, We've yeah. got his drawings, yeah. Without Abbey Road, my father wouldn't have got a job uh, out of the Guildhall School of Music. And without my father being in Abbey Road, there probably wouldn't have been the Beatles. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty fair summary, isn't it, of the three links in the chain? 
It's life, isn't it? There's all, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Listen, winding, winding forward and backwards, I think that, I think, and my dad always said this, with, without him signing them, that probably John and Paul would have probably gone and done amazing things. Yeah. It's not as, a, and George and Ringo, they, you know, they, were, they still had that inherent talent and that ability. And having worked with Paul now on, his, on an album and knowing him as, as, you know, as kind of well as I do, he is unrelenting in his innovative ambition that he has to do stuff. I mean, I mean three particularly. Yeah, know, McCartney three. I mean, like, you know, it, it does not even worth mentioning his age because it's, it's unimportant no. because he works harder than anyone else I know. And in studios, he still finds studios really exciting, you know, and that's, you know, a recording really exciting. He loves it. And when he asked me to be his producer, I was thinking, wait a second, he's had my dad, he's had, you know, everyone trevor yeah. horn to nigel to chris thomas to i mean everyone has produced paul and you think well I, what, what am i doing here and then you realize but he walked in the studios like he'd never been in the studios before in his life it's a he's his first day it's like a childlike wonder yeah sort it's of. brilliant it's like you know I've done, there's no one like him as far as going okay what are we going to do this will be great you know it's that's the way he is he's never ever not like that in the studios he's always grateful to be in that place yeah I've seen him at the other end where he's sort of playing the record for the first time to, say, the record company. And I've never seen anyone selling a record as yeah. much as him. He's just like, you love this next bit, you know, playing along to, you know, yeah, to a guitar solo. And he's just, you can see he's just loving it. And, yeah, he you know, absolutely so loves passionate it. about it's, the whole it's, thing. It's, despite them being turned down by everyone and my dad signed them, I think if my dad not signed them, they would have probably they still... But they wouldn't have been the same. I mean, the musicality the and yeah. the, the technical setup and the Well, sound. yeah, I think, I think they were just... It's that thing about what it all boils down to in the recording world and probably with the very early pioneers. It's also with, you know, human beings, you know, collaborating and working together. That's been the strangest thing about, you know, what we've been through for the last year is we can still do all of our stuff. I can still, you know, and I have done, you know, mixed and made records and, and done a whole lot of stuff here. But... You don't have that walking into a room with someone. You don't mm. have that. You know, I can tell more from playing someone something what it sounds like than I can for, for, for 25 seconds, even if they don't have an opinion, than I would do for spending an hour working on it. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's because I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> or very, very clever. One or the other. I know which one I think it probably is. Love. James, we were going to talk about love. James bit, is pointing at me, that, which, which means that I'm obviously due to ask a question at this no, point. It was, it was, no, I, I was running Abbey Road at the time that you and your dad were making yeah. the love record. Yeah. And that that was one of my favourite things because I would pop in. You had a, room, a special room all yeah. set up and I'd pop by every so often and say, would you like to hear what we've done? It's like, what do you think the answer to that question <laughs> is? It's like, And I remember once particularly, you'd just done the putting Tomorrow Never Knows and Within You, Without yeah. You, and it sounded like a Chemical Brothers record. Yeah, yeah. It was just kind of like, that sounded amazing. That, that, that was, was that quite early on in the process? Yeah, that, yeah. I remember that my was dad, almost the first thing I heard. My dad absolutely hated it. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did. He thought he was, he thought I was feeling, he said, you, no, come on, you're pushing things too far now. <laughs> he loved it in the end, but he didn't like it at the time. Like a lot of people wouldn't like the idea. I thought, I was, I was laughing at the fact, the idea that, that George Martin's son gets the opportunity to chop up the Beatles tapes to create a show in Las Vegas. It still sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah. It probably still is, but anyway, we got away with it. I was listening to the, you know, the album that, that came out from it the, the other day, and I just think it's wonderful. In fact, oh, I, play, I, I played it, I was I was I think it was doing housework, and I just had it on in the background, and it, it was just playing over and over again, and I must have had it on for four or five hours, and it 
it just I listen to the Beatles it's, all the time, it, and it's, it's just a different cut. Yeah, it's and funny. Joy. It's funny. Yeah. I still get. It's, I got a message from David Williams via Twitter. It was bizarre, saying I've just been listening to the Love album. I, re, I think it's a, I think it's a brilliant piece of work or whatever. And it's like, oh, that's that's. <laughs> I, I, shoot, oh, maybe I maybe I know when I peaked. Is that is that is that it? But yeah, it was. It was you know, probably me giving you some notes every yeah, was, morning. Was, I'd go and I well, said, like, a little bit louder there, a little bit quieter you know, there. You know what? The funny thing about the inception of the Love whole project was born out of entire desperation. Absolutely, it's one of those things where I remember I I um I worked for Rob Dickens, who was head of Warner Brothers and did a worked on a uh, worked on the uh, ill-fated girl girl band called the Alice Band, and it all didn't. That's a did, terrible name, sorry. Yeah, and it all didn't go very didn't go very well, and I left, and I kind of thought, you know, what do I do now? I've been a band that failed. That's basically a failure. It's pretty, you know, and then and then um, I was asked to do a Haley Weston role who was a classical girl singer. And it was that sort of crossover classical music that I don't really like very much. Anyway, she was a lovely girl, and we did an album, and it sold two million copies. It was the fastest-selling classical album of all time. So suddenly I became the crossover classical guy. And I was like thinking, versions of Ave Maria with beats. It's like, you know, this is just, what's this world I've been drawn into? But funny, because it was successful, the Beatles allowed me to go and, play around with the tapes and i said to neil aspinall um who was the head of apple i went listen because they'd already um got certain slow and they did some remixes there i think they were but i never heard them. i think they were bad and i said to neil listen i rep my dad wasn't well at the time and i said to neil i reckon i can create a show that never existed but just by using the tapes by creating a concert that never happened and he goes you got three months we're not paying you and that was when I came to Abbey Road and I was in Alan Rouse's room at that stage. And I did the Tomorrow Never Knows Within You Without You There ah. mash mashup. I think yeah. I was working on headphones as well. We didn't get speakers, and um, and and that was the inception of the Love Show. And it was purely born out of oh, getting a, getting a way out of doing crossover classical music. And <laughs> and 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 I thought, well, I'm pr I'm definitely going to get fired. And I don't know if you remember we. I made the decision to back up all of the tapes properly because they're all backed on Mitsubishi digital tape. And I said, we should put these onto Pro Tools. Yeah. And I thought, at least I'll leave with one thing. When they fire me, at least I'll have backed up all the albums. All the, all the master tapes. All the, the master tapes. I'll, I'll, records, I'll, have, yeah. I'll have at least overseen them back up, back up with them because they hadn't been backed up. Because I know I'll get fired for this because because of what I'm doing. And I just carried on and I never got fired. And that's what happened. It was like one of those things. It's that great sort of attitude of you've of fearlessness. It's like, well, you know, I mean, I'm just gonna do what I think I'm gonna do and not really I, it's obviously gonna go wrong at yeah. some point, but at least I'll go wrong. At least I'll go down fighting. Do you know what I mean? My way. That yeah, yeah. yeah. And um and yeah, and it all worked out. It just it just continued going and and here I am now. <laughs> the, I remember the reviews, but the reviews are universally fantastic. Yeah, it was. It was like I was just, and even to the day I remember the, the opening night, I just thought, well, you know, my dad will be okay because you know he's George Myers, but I'm going to get absolutely crucified for this. But you know what? It's been such a good experience. It's been such a laugh. I just accepted. I was like, yeah, go. On. And you if could have gone been, and found Cooler well, Shaker. And, and, well, no, you know, but if you've been, it's funny. If you're the son of George Martin, which which I I am. There's, you know, you've been told for ten or fifteen years, including by my dad. You know what are you doing, doing this for a living? It's a, it's a, it's a really inherent thing you have, and so, you know, you can take a good beating, you really can. Yeah. And so I just thought, you know what, and 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 I was so surprised that it was universally acclaimed. I was thinking, wow, I wouldn't have given this much, you know, because you don't. Yeah, you know. of course. Have you had that beating ever? Uh, 
No, not really. I mean, yeah, I, from early on, I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, early on when I wasn't. The thing is, I wasn't very good, and I'm, you know, I'm still trying to get there. But you know, you, 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 everyone. The thing is, if you're if you're in that position, people either think you're the second coming, or you couldn't get a proper job. You can't be. You can't just be where I probably am, which is somewhere in, in the middle. Yeah, yeah. You can't be. Do you know what I mean? It's it's funny, and so that barometer shifts. And I guess you make, you know, everybody makes mistakes as they're learning how to do yeah. whatever job. Oh, God, I was rubbish. And so yours were in public because people we were, look, told you you couldn't uh, do it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. He's only and here because, you and know, it's, all of those things. I, but I remember that even actually after that, after that audition period with Love, I was in New York. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was a singer and she went over to New York. And um, my mate Chris Sheldon, I, it all got, the, it got green lit and... I got a phone call saying, or it's happening. And I thought, do I want to do this? If I do this, I'll be doing Beatles stuff. I don't know if I want to do Beatles stuff. I never thought about doing any Beatles stuff ever. And I phoned up Chris. I said, I'm not sure if I want to do this. He goes, you don't want to do it. I'll do it. Yeah, it's like, you know. You know I'd do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That I've was got the, 10 years, but yeah, I'd do it. You know, that was the thing. It was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should do it then. Can you I know. ask the most important question? Did you get paid? They did. They paid me, yes. <laughs> they, they paid me. And even better than that, um, they, 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 we, we, we actually got a royalty on the on the show. So the show's been going for fifteen years oh, now. It stopped last year. Yeah, thing to so, have. So, yeah. so Adam, my manager, who was became my dad, he's my mate from college, who you've met actually. The you wonderful know Adam, Adam Sharp. I've known Sharp. him for fifteen yeah, years. Yeah, so he was my as my manager is someone I was at university with, and uh, and yeah, he it was you know he learned. We were all learning together, and that's the thing, isn't it? So again, it's like you just try and. Everyone just has a go. We all make mistakes and end up, hopefully, it ends up all right. Yeah. Um, can, can you, we're a bit Beatles nerds. I know we should be talking about probably older no. recordings, but but what's it like getting getting the um, record recording takes, the master takes, and being able to listen to different tracks? And, you know, is, is, was it, did you sort of blow dust off them and it was like golden today? What, what was it like? There's no dust on them for a start. It's, it's, you know what? It's my first experience of the Beatles multi tracks was, um, my dad brought me into work on Anthology 2, I remember, the Beatles Anthology, which is when I was about 20. And I was, and I remember the Den Life, which I think is one of my favorite Beatles songs. And it really sounded like we were up at the old penthouse before they changed to Abbey Road. And it really felt like John was behind the glass. Like the, the quality of the recording is such that you expect it to sound like an old cracker, but it doesn't. It sounds as good as a recording. In fact, you know, You'd hope to do a recording that good now. It's not even a question of, oh, this is retro or what plugins are they using, all this kind of recording stuff. It's not. It just, they just sound really good. And one of the the sort of difficulties of late has been people expect me to go and remix a Beatles album, or some people do, you know, the side And you go, but they sound really good, you know. So it's a you don't you don't have, you don't do, do do trickery to make it sound better because they actually sound. Yeah. And so after a while, you know, familiarity does breed contempt, and you just go, okay, how are we going to deal with this? Or this isn't a very good recording, or this is this. It becomes workmanlike. But the the actual what they put to tape was extraordinary. Their efficiency was amazing. That sounds a really boring word, but in music, that's really clever. You know, the fact that. You know, think about how much, how many different instruments are on a record nowadays, you know, because they can be. And Beatles have three or four, 
and it's a completely full sound. My dad always said, you know, if you want to double track something, a good, you know, a guitar, for instance, you have a really good reason to do it because it'll just make us it'll, it'll cut it in half. They won't, mm. they won't double it. The, we, I was talking to a friend about the, the pace of change in recording technology and the Beatles. And if you listen to Please Please Me, the album from sort of 63, and the songs from that era, it sounds very much like a sort of early rock and roll band. Yeah. But then you go forward almost what, two years, three years to, to Rubber Soul or, or Sgt. Pepper, and it, it sounds like modern music, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, what, I don't think what, that's. I is, don't think that's even rec- too much recording. I think that's lots to do with the band. So it's the band rather than. Well, I the, think if you think about the sophisticated recordings that people were doing in America, you know, with you know big band stuff or Frank yeah. Sinatra or you know they, they're pretty full sounding records, which are just just the band. The Beatles were a young rock and roll band, and they changed. So they were getting more expansive yeah, rather and, than. Recording. And what was interesting for me is that, you know, they had four track tape. My dad always denied this, but it's not true that they had four-track tape available when the Beatles were recording on two-track. It's just that there was no reason to really record on a band, you know, a band like the Beatles onto, onto four-track. Why, why have that luxury? Because they'll be gone in a it's, year or two. It's going to be it's going to be in mono anyway. Yeah, and um, and you know, I think there's a correlation between recording and playback. Funny enough, and what you're what you're recording for, you know. You know these records were were they they weren't even built to last if you think about it. You know it was a completely new format of 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 in the mainstream of buying records to that scale. Yeah. And you know she loves you was made and it was probably meant to be destroyed in about a year's time because there was something else out. They never they weren't they weren't there wasn't a legacy. Does that make sense? It yes. Wasn't. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that affects the sound you make to a certain degree. Yeah. Um. I think that, yeah, I think that, that no doubt, you know, with the, you know, for instance, if you take the sound of the Abbey Road album, um, there's a there's sort of three different stages, as you, as you, as you allude to. The, there's the two-track stage, yeah. which is the first couple of records. And then even when they did four-track, they didn't actually use all four tracks because they were so used to using two tracks. You'd find that certain, certain, certain songs, because they would record the band on one track, two vocals and a guitar solo maybe, or... Or a vocal and a guitar solo. You yeah. find with Hard Day's Night, which is a four-track, it's kind of like a two-track because it's like, well, why, why don't you use? Why shouldn't you use more? Why don't you put the drums on a track, for instance, or the bass or something on a different track? Well, they wouldn't do guitar, bass, and drums on one track. And then obviously, when it became to the musical ambition changed, the re- that would influence the recording ambition. Right. So it's that's that the way, way it went. Yeah. You know, like you know, you know, you know, famously, bass became more important. And bass wasn't so much of a worry because technology would would be better with vinyl record players, and you know they, the the needle wouldn't jump out of the groove so much. And manufacturing techniques, and they're all linked together. There's all this, and that can help the music, and so on, and and it, and it goes on. Yeah. But but there's that whole thing where four track became prevalent, and four to fours with with obviously Sergeant Pepper and the sort of Magical Mystery era. Then eight track was a band being able to record live and have things on separate tracks. But Abbey Road changed it because Abbey Road was a transistor desk. The desk changed. What does that mean for for? Well, there's there's ways there's ways of, of preamping amplifying the microphone input, which right. needs to be amplified onto tape. And um, the Beatles were using the old valve red desks, and they switched to the um, TG transistor desk for Abbey Road, which then was the template for um, 
things like Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, right. and albums yeah. following it. And it's a much, it was a much cleaner sound. So Abbey Road has a different sound. It's a much more modern sounding record. It has deeper bass. All of the, it's not so limited. All of these things compared to the uh, where I think I've got a feeling Let It Be wasn't. I think Let It Be was back on to recorded through. It sort of sounds test. it to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I've just been mixing it. It certainly sounds it. it sounds more so now. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But Abbey, Abbey Road, I think, always feels like a seventies record. Where, yeah, where, you know, where yeah. the, the, the others. Yeah, 60s record. Well, that, but don't forget, Let It Be was you know to remind ourselves recorded before Abbey Road. Yeah. Um, I just got myself stuck. Yeah, but yeah, that, but Abbey Road is is a hi-fi album mm. in a way, where the others weren't. But yeah, so I think. To, you know, I've been wittering on, but I think to answer the question, I think that we have to look at this sort of holistically where one thing affects the other affects the other. So the band, obviously, the sound of the band really is the biggest thing that affects the sound of a record and not the recording, Yeah, yeah. in, in my opinion. Um, because microphones are pretty good and they have been pretty good for a long time. And then you have the way you make the record is influenced by the way people listen to the records. You know, the, the technology they have the available. technology people have available yeah absolutely you know you know if you can't monitor correctly you're not going to make you know and if you're, if, you're, if you're worried about loudness or you're worried about all of these things you can make a different record and that know? feeds back into the process of how they make records and, yeah. and, and if you think about it, we don't make records for radio anymore but everyone used to you know I, I, I have these like audio guys and hi-fi guys which I find you know to be honest yeah, I I mean, what do they what do they what do they call themselves? I can't remember. Anyway, you know the people who who always have plastic bags of records in them and stuff like that. And they they always come they always come and talk to it and they talk to you about and especially with some like coming like Sonos that make obviously uh, wireless yeah. speakers. But the people who I work with are there. They're really deeply passionate about music. It's yeah. not like you know, and the, the, the sort of people that can hear they feel like they can hear bits, which right. they can't. They're just hearing sound waves, obviously. Um, They'll say to me, but, you know, limiting is really bad and you know, this whole loudness wars. And you think, wait a second, my dad flew over to Capitol Studios to work out how the Americans could make records so loud and went to the Come Fly, come fly With Me sessions with Frank Sinatra. He was there during that recording because they were working how the Americans were limiting things so well. And so you really have a snapshot from about 1972 to about 1980 where there wasn't much limiting on records. So you have the Steely Dans, you have Super Tramp, and you Eagles have and the Eagles. Kind of soft and, yeah, and, and so I asked these guys from Hi-Fi Club in, in Scandinavia who came to see me, what are your fa what records would you play? And they went, uh, Souls of Swings by Dire Straits. So I was like, okay, that's, you know, 1977. So, and you know, how about Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon? I was like, right, that's 74, I think. Oh, right. And you've you got it, you, you can't wipe out the whole history of music apart from the period of time you're limiting. You know, it's that thing. It's a strange... So, I, but I think we do make records. We make records, um, and now we can make records for anything. Yeah, it's interesting because when the early days of recorded industry, you know, th there was the artist, there was the recording technology to capture sound, yeah. and they were they were making and updating constantly the gramophones to to, to play things, and that and you can see it in the way Fred was um, Fred Geisberg was developing his recording, and the guys that were helping develop the technology at that time back in the laboratory yeah. doing exactly this. And it all, it, it, it's a sort of virtuous circle, isn't it? it or at least it's a, it's a circle, it's a kind of chains that, that drives a pro, drive progress forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was weekly changes they made to, yeah. you know, to and their guess, very rudimentary technology. Yeah. But it all fed in, didn't it? And I guess now, you know, most people listen through sort of buds 
to music most of the time while they're moving. I don't imagine you're a bud man, Giles. I do have a selection of buds, um, which I use for sort of testing them. So I use the I use the uh, the fruit based um, companies, um, uh, and, and they're actually I, I, they're really handy. They're really good. It's funny, people. I I, I care less. People go, you know, about because I'm listening to pod, I'm listening to podcasts or or or, or sports most of the time, yeah, you know, yeah. or you know. So it's it's funny. Yeah, you know, I listen. I think that there's been there's been a shift that's happened in the way that the music is listened to. That you know used to you know, and it and it's it's changing. And I'm I'm pleased to be part of that revolution. But mm. um, you know, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, you walk into a house and they have a big pair of floor standing speakers there. Yeah. Um, and they just got replaced by flat big flat screen TVs. Mm. And yeah. that's changed. Um so, but I think, but I think with technology now, we're building speakers that are smaller and better, and it's quite extraordinary what you could do now. And you know, and I think that 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 if you can think about sound, if you you shouldn't really notice it, you know, you shouldn't yeah. really. But if you can make great sound out of a device, then people enjoy their music more. Exactly. It won't stop them from enjoying their music. You can have there's an AM radio with a loved one listen to a, a crappy old song, and it sounds the best song you've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. But it does help. If you if you're listening to something good, yeah. Can I ask you about the White Album? I know we're jumping back to the Beatles here. The, in the 50th anniversary, 50th anniversary edition, and those Easter sessions are incredible, by the way, aren't they? Just, yeah. You said in the sleeve notes that you, when Brian Epstein died, your dad said, I think the phrase was, he lost the classroom with the Beatles, and they just went a bit haywire sonically with with the kind of music they were writing. Can you just explain a bit about what you what you meant or what you think he meant by that? Well, yeah, I think that I think that the the Beatles, you know, despite what people think, they had a plan to them. Yeah. And Brian and my dad were very much for you know Brian put them in the suits, for instance, and you know, and they were a boy band, and then they wouldn't want to be a boy band when Brian would guide them. Um, and he probably had the same sort of um, personal ability that my dad had, which you know is that sort of carrot and the stick mentality. But yeah. he, they were probably good cop and good cop to a certain degree. And Sgt. Pepper's was very much a an album that was devised coming out of the touring era where they they stopped touring and they wanted to, to put a re- and they could now put a record on tour. And that's what Sgt. Pepper's was. And they could they could they could paint a picture in the studios, paint a world. And I think it was quite an arduous process for some of the members of the band, not for all. Um and I think the White Album was a reaction to that, but they didn't have Brian to go, listen, listen, guys, you know, maybe we should rein it in a bit. Rain it in a yeah. bit. So the White Album was basically, you know, we are going to, you know, we're the Beatles, we can, we're going to go and enjoy ourselves in the studios. You know, and I think that, um, and then moving on, Let It Be was a more of a progression for that, where they're trying to find the magic of, of what went on before. Yeah. You know, yeah. Paul and... Ringo, sorry, Paul and John, but no doubt were trying to find the spark they had, trying to find that spark they had before. I want to get back. Um, that's yeah. what it was called originally, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they, so, so yeah, the White Album was that when I said loss of classroom, he didn't have as much influence over what they were doing. Right. Right. He didn't have, you know, they started producing themselves more and have, you know, they were, instead, they were more, they were more aware of what the sounds they wanted, mm. opposed to being guided in the early days. They were certainly guided by him. Absolutely. Yeah. And what can you tell us, if anything, about the Peter Jackson Jackson Let It Be project? Are you involved? Yeah, I'm involved in it and have been involved in it since the inception. 
Um, and I met Peter a couple of times, obviously pre-lockdown. I was meant to be in New Zealand, actually, working in New Zealand last July and August, working on it with him. But obviously that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's, 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 he's working on the edit. Um, it's going to be released later on this year. Um, uh, I'm going to mix the film. I've mixed the album for release. Um, and yeah, it's, and, and I think the funny thing about let it, the let it be period is that, um, it was sort of released under a cloud because it was, you know, it, everything since the last thing the Beatles did, it was a breakup of the Beatles, but because that's how it's portrayed, but of course it's not the break of the Beatles. Then they went to go and make Abbey Road, yeah. which was which has been their most successful album, which is a bit weird if, if it's really the break of if Let yeah. It Be is formatting the break of the Beatles. But obviously, you know, John and George took the tapes to Phil Spector without without Paul knowing it, and and therefore the whole thing is under this cloud. And then a bit like um, a divorce or any breakup of a friendship, they. Those two especially went into a whole lot of press saying how unhappy the whole process was, but really it wasn't that unhappy. And I'm not saying this from a, a Disney Plus perspective. Yeah. Um, it it wasn't, you can't really make, you know, do songs like Two of Us with John Lennon whistling in it and stuff like that if you're really deeply unhappy with each other. It doesn't happen. So so I think the, I think the film, the footage looks amazing. I mean, Peter's team is, in, is extraordinary at... Um, are just doing um, restoration work. I mean, in that the, the the first World War oh, film they did was just so moving. It was funny. I was talking to him. We had this meeting with him and his producer, and I was talking about how it was important. You know, I'd like to get the feeling that we're in the room with the band. When and there's this with all these sound stuff. I was thinking about doing like me being sort of knobby, not you know, like, this is what leisure. And then what's that first World War thing? I was like, oh yeah, because yeah, I guess they know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, it's and I think that's what we want to do is I think we want to be honest. I think we want to portray what it's like to be in a room with the Beatles for that period of time. And he's uh yeah, we should it it's it's it'll it'll be fun. I mean I think I start work I start my bit in about a month's time. I can't wait. Yeah, I mean I think it's gonna be huge. Yeah. Hopefully cinemas will be open at that point and it'll become a real Yeah, well that's thing. the hope. That's yeah. that's why it's been put back, because it's one of those things we'd like to see in, in the movie theatres. But um it's not in our hands. I think it's going to come out anyway. Um, yeah. But it'd be great to uh, just experience, you know, things loud as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's going to be heard properly, yeah. hasn't and, it? And with other people. Yeah. You know, music's better. We mix the rooftop, actually. I've, I've done that, which is great. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's that thing about if this is the break of the Beatles, why are they playing so well on the rooftop? Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize on the album that, Three of the songs on the album, which are the rooftop recordings. Yeah, I only found that out this yeah. week. I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. Listen, listening that. to I Am like, the Podcast that yeah. told me that. Yeah. Oh, did it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because um, one, one of the songs on the roof was it Don't Let Me Down? Don't Bring yeah, Me Down. Don't Let Me Down. Yeah. yeah. That's not on the album. That's B side, yeah. 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 One of my favorite records yeah, yeah. from that, that period. Yeah, so yeah. that's a rooftop recording as well. Yeah. That's the funny thing. It's, the, it's people don't realize, like, I think Digger Pony, One After 909, Get Back, they're all, they're all rooftop. I think there's another one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's bonkers. It's yeah, like, yeah, that is. I, I mean, mean, they were they were they were a good band. That's <laughs> what yeah. Paul says. But whenever I do a playback, and I did an Atmos mix with Sergeant Pepper, and Paul came listened to it, and it's rare that he'd listen to a whole album anyway. But he did listen, and we, he came with Mary, and he went, 
we were a good band, weren't we? I said, yeah, you were. That's what it is. <laughs> there's, there's a clip on the internet of George Harrison being played something in about 1975, 76, and it was something that they'd recorded in about 65, Rubber Soul type yeah. period. And it's on Granada, and they've, they're filming him listening to I don't know why they've got him in there listening to it. And at the end, he, he looks shocked. He, he says, you know, almost exactly the same. Yeah. We were pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, you were. <laughs> I mean, they worked. I can't think of a harder working band. No. No, I was trying to explain to them the other day how how short their career was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's, really the, was. that's the surprising thing. It's like they lived they lived their life they lived their life in fast forward. Yeah, um, no wonder they were tired at the end of it. There's a box. There's a story that Dave uh, and I were talking about the other day. There was a box of percussion instruments, chimes and whistles and bells and horns that the gramophone company bought in 1902 when they opened the City Road Studio, which was the one before Abbey Road, Bef- wasn't it? Bef- well, yes, yes, yes. They may have gone off to do some stuff at Hayes in between. Yes. But definitely, it was the, it was the, per- it was the last purpose-built one in London. And yeah. Dave, Dave reckons this box of, of instruments followed EMI round from studio to studio and ended up in a cupboard somewhere in Abbey Road. I'm slightly obsessed with... The, the, all the noises on Sergeant Pepper, on things like, um, or Yellow Submarine, for example, came from this box, right? Yeah. So the kind of, and the, the, the kazoo or whatever they're playing. Do you know anything about these instruments, where they are, where they came the, from? The, the, just, just before you go, because it, it was actually a set of chimes, and it's in, your dad wrote a book around about the making of Sergeant Pepper, and he said he found some old chimes, and Ringo banged them out, and I just... Well, the chimes. They... No, well, the chimes on when I'm 64. I know this. Yeah, are Paul has right ah. in the studios. Um, I, but I, when they opened City Road in 1902, are they chimes like hanging down? Yeah, yeah. There's a picture of them in that studio with so, Fred Geisberg next. To them. I wonder if that's yeah. What are the same ones? Yeah, they're, yeah. they're oh, yeah, it's Paul. So can we have tubular them back? bells? <laughs> yeah. They are tubular yes, bells. That's exactly what they were. Yeah, um, yeah so Paul has those. Um, oh, he has the light as well. I think that was given to them. You know, when they asked for. They asked for um, they asked EMI to juice things up a bit for Studio Two, and they gave them three, 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 three you know, red, red, uh, blue, and green fluorescent strip lighting. And I think he he, he has that. He's got that because they wanted more vibey, like. Um, but I I heard about studio. this box of stuff you under, know about under the stairs of Studio of Studio, t- and I've never seen it. Is the answer. It's one of those myths. Isn't I, it? I, I've never seen. It. I just heard heard that. But a lot of the a lot of the stuff it. is stock sound effect. Library right. tapes that right. they stuck on, yeah, um, and then the kazoos. I think because just kazoos, I don't think kazoos are kept. There, there, there is a, um, there certainly was, and there was in my time at Abbey Road a library of old, um, yeah, tapes, tapes, yeah, with sound effects on. Well, we still use them when we're doing when we're doing, um, you know, this the album work we're doing. We someone, not me, Matthew Cocker has to go and find the right sound effects tapes and sit them back on and sync with the album. You know, so we have them on a separate track. Yeah, yeah. What more is there to do in the Beatles world in terms of remastering or... I mean, Re- or it's after... remixing, really. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's... It's, it's the same. So when we... So Sgt. Pepper was the first album yeah. that, that I was... That I did. Um, and funny enough, it was just after my dad died. It was almost like... It was almost like, you know... He died, and it's like right. I'm going to go and ruin your records now, Dad. Um, it was very strange because they and they asked me. I wasn't. It's not like I. People think I suggest these things. I'm the person behind it, yeah. and I'm not. 
uh, Apple and Universal uh, asked me to go and do Sgt. Pepper for the 50th anniversary. And I said, why are we remixing it? It's a pretty good sounding record. And they said, well, we want to know what it would be like. And I said, well, okay, well, why don't I just do a few tracks and then I'll come back to you and we'll see what it's like. And then, so we, we did, we, 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 and I suddenly actually realized there was something quite good about this because we, you know, we've got four to four transfers and all that sort of stuff. And we did a, and, and I just said, it's worth doing. You know, it, it, we, everyone listened to it. The weird thing was going in there and actually the first thing, my father just died. And the first thing I voice I heard was his. It was, it was gosh, that must have been, yeah, that must have been. Um, it reminds me, I was, with, yeah, I was with Yoko at the Love Show. This is years ago. And, and she said, uh, and, you know, the Love Show has a lot of John's, you know, we use, I use their spoken voice a lot in the show. And she goes, it's funny, he's just a voice now. And it always reminded me when I heard my dad, I was like, he's just a voice now. Of course he's not, but he, you know, it is that thing. It's like someone, someone's dead, they're dead, I'm afraid, you know. But, you know, my dad passed away. I'd love to hear his voice. Yeah, yeah. From, 50 years ago and 60 years ago, you yeah. know, it would be great. And so people, people, people live on. Exactly. Amazing world changing things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so with, with the Beatles, we're really, we're really wary of not, you know, trying to get blood out of a stone, mm. the Beatles. And they, there's a huge, you know, there's a huge, there's a, there's a big wave of people that want me to go and look at things like Rubber Soul or Revolver and those albums. And I think that, uh, I wouldn't never say never, but the things was look at them and see whether it's worth doing. Yeah, them. rather than just. Yeah. I think I mean, for instance, Rubber Soul has a lot of vocals on the right hand side. I think it'd be nice to center the vocals. You know, so people you're listening headphones, they, you know, mm. or your pods, it makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. I guess guessing those the stereo mix was done as well, an after afterthought. Yeah, really, yeah, wasn't it? Didn't really they, exist, mono yeah. was the commercial. And the, a lot of the stereos mix were done for America as well, and not by my dad or Jeff Emmerich or whoever. They were just done. Um, yeah, so there's there's that, and then there's also there's also this new sort of there's a lot of things coming out in binaural and this sort of stuff. There's new web yeah. technologies coming out, so whether we do something for that, but my view of it, all honesty, is anything that makes a new generation go and listen to them. If you can drum up a story, and if people, you know, go. I remember when we did Love, this, the, the, I did an interview with Radio Four, and she goes, "I much prefer the original version of Strawberry Fields to your version of Strawberry Fields." I think the version on Love is just a bunch of demos I cut yeah. together to create a story of how the song was written. I was like, well, good. I mean, you should do, really. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, as long as people are, people are aware of it, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and then it's great. I mean... Because I remember pre-Oasis, the Beatles were kind of, they weren't abs- It's thing, funny. Were you're, you're <laughs> and I say this to people, people find it quite offensive. I go, you have to understand that. I'm trying to explain to my, my kids, actually, funny enough. You know, they go... What was it like, you know, your your dad being George Martin, all that sort of stuff? And you go, well, didn't make any difference because no one, the Beatles were really uncool. They were, early they were, 90s. They, they were really, they were, and then, you know, especially 80s growing up, they were yeah. not, it wasn't, the, you know, the Beatles were, and then Oasis came out. And, was, and I was talking to an old friend I was, I was at university with, and, and in the summer of 84, we lived in a terraced house in Norwich, and we took the sofa and the chairs outside into the front garden, brought speakers out, and we just play records, drink gin and tonics. That was our final summer term of not doing anything. And I'd try and put a record, a Beatles record on, which I loved, and they would just get that off. You know, <laughs> strangely enough, I was chatting to him today, and I, 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 yesterday, and I mentioned that to him. He said, always like the Beatles. Ah, but the they revisionism. They, yeah, yeah. yeah. Revisionism, he, they were not cool. No, they I weren't. I guess it was too close yeah, to Yeah, it was to too close them. to it. 
omni, omnipotent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is why, you know, we're not listening to S Club 7 now, but we will be in, totally in five years well, time. Well, talk for yourself there. That book, yeah. in, fact, in fact, they're about to go on tour, I think, so they're, they're about ready. You did the Stones, Goat Heads, Goat's Head suit. Yeah. Um, and funnily, one of my favourite Stones song now is a demo from that of 100 years ago. It's a, oh, like a piano. Yeah, tune. yeah, yeah. No one sings the word lazy bones like Mick Jagger. Yeah, he does. Lazy yeah. Bow. Yeah. It's just... Um, he chews the word. He chews the... Yeah. yeah. That must have been a diff- different proposition to the Beatles, though. Beatles and Stones... Yeah, I was quite surprised actually that I was asked to do the Stones and uh you know because because I've done the Beatles yeah. it's like it's like you know tour of the world um yeah it, it was it it was a t- tricky album that because it was done in recorded in Jamaica and uh and not with the same precision that say someone like strawberry so right. like Sgt yes. Pepper's was, was was done in um and also it has a sound to it. Again, that t- that two and a half, three kilohertz sound, that kind of eh sound to it, which yeah. makes it sound exciting. So you make things sound too clean and too tidy and they start. And actually, interesting enough with that, that was they wanted to do an Atmos um, mix of it or a 5-1 mix of, of the album. And then, uh, you know, my friends at Universal went, oh, and, and by the way, let's do a stereo as well. After it's like, oh, because I went back into my room at Abbey Road actually and, and spent a while work, reworking the stereo. Um, because there's two different ways of looking at this. You do you, if you're asked to a an, a five one or an Atmos version of an album, you take that album and you make it sound like how it sounded. Yeah. But it's an immersive version of right. it. So that's five point one is five speakers and a, yeah. and a one is the one correct. Is the sub, and then uh, Atmos is where well, it could be anything. But right now we're in a uh, we're in a seven point two point four, which is seven. So speak, the room we're in now. Yeah. It was a seven. So so. So left, center, right, side, side, rear, rear, around, left, around, and then four there are eleven speakers here. Yeah, four speakers on the ceiling and two subs. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, this the, you, but you're doing an immersive version of an album you know. Then if you want a new stereo, you're not doing the album you know because that'd be exactly the same. So you've got to I've got to read, and then I had to get it was not one of those things. But it was it was it was really good fun, and actually they were lovely. They were yeah. absolutely great to deal with. Mick came in, we chatted. Really, I mean, he's like. Like a lot of these people, he's legend, but he's super bright. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. no, there's no, you know, it's like Paul. It's like you could, there's no bluffing. It's just basically this is how it is. These are my worries. You know, this is how you do it. Because um, what happened with that is they got someone with that. They got someone in America to do some work, and my role as head of sound audio for Universal to to meet Mick and play him this new technology. He went. It's not very rock and roll, is it? I said, well, it could be if 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 he's made things too wide and it's. And is that how you got the gig? You... Well, I didn't. I didn't want to get the gig. I yeah. mean, I was like, I said, you need to do, you need to do this. And I said, and he's really good, this guy. And then the message came back, Mick wants you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was like, I wasn't trying to get the gig, but because um, there's a run, I hate to be. There's a run of 50th Stones anniversaries coming up, and do you think there might be more of those? They're talking. They're, they're talking. They're talking about it. Yeah. Um, but just, I wouldn't expect that I, they'd get me to do yeah. it or someone else. But yeah, I, th- I think I think it's great doing this stuff. Um, you know, we are, especially the different generations. One thing that's quite fun is you can cut vinyls now, which are, which are really nice vinyls to cut. And on the other side of stuff, you can have these huge behemoth corporations like Apple and Amazon and whoever that will take a thing like a goat's head soup and yeah. go, okay, kids, you should listen to this. Yeah, and they have that power. Yeah, and so that's I think that's quite cool, you know, because music is think about it, the thing about think about records, and so I always this is what I strongly believe is record, and and it goes to your podcast. A recording 
is exactly that. It's a, it's a, it, you can time travel with a recording. You know, however old the Stones were and Goats and Soup is probably, you know, mid to late 20s. Yeah. They're going to be, they're, they're a mid to late 20s band. That's what they are. They're, they're younger than the Arctic Monkeys are now when they made Goat's Head Soup. And so you go, that's how the record, that's the approach the record should be. Yeah, yeah. So when I want people to listen to that album, I want people to listen to that, like that's the, you're listening to a 28 year old, the 27 year old, not a, not Mick Jagger not now. Not so Mick Jagger. Or, I'm not. And that's my, always my approach. Same with the Beatles. That's always my approach is that it's the now. That's the important thing. I'm, we are time traveling here. You're going, going back to the, your, your original point, Dave, about listening to the tapes. The primary purpose of the tape is you're in the room with them at that point in time. That's what I'm trying to get people when I'm working on these projects to go for people, not to people thinking about, oh, this is an old record. What's this record? To go, this is these are cool sounds, or I like this song, whatever it is. It's it's now. I, th- I think John Lennon once was gave the description of what pop music was. He said it was about being here now, be here now. Yeah. And I think Oasis then used that as an album that, title. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's you know you can, you know, music has an extraordinary power. Um, you it know, transports you in time. It, it it can really do so, but it also you can you can also stop and just go. It's funny. Recently, I've been listening to um, some eighties recordings and eighties bands. You just think I kind of miss the fact that people don't have the money or care and attention to make these records anymore. You know, you don't any in particular. A, what was the? Well, if you listen to anything from you know anything from um, Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel to um, to say tears for fears or you know these bands that 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 made these records you know like you know sowing the seeds of love or you know well, these... it's interesting just to loop back to what we were talking about earlier that came out and it was a clear beatles uh yeah homage let's say yeah. um and that was certainly not seen as cool you know woman in chains is yeah. really a, you know people used to test pa systems on you know but i mean you know you don't get any albums out now that Apart from the hip hop community, you know, yeah. that's they're they're the ones, they they were the ones, especially with um, you know Dre and all that kind of stuff. They're the ones breaking the bounds much more than anyone else was in the nineties and two thousands. That's interesting. Do you think music's too much of a volume game now? I read some of that something like fifty thousand new tracks are put on streaming. Sixty thousand is, is every staggering. Week. Every, day, every day, every day, sixty thousand tracks on Spotify a day. Yeah, I mean, I remember Tom York saying, you know, we used to. We used to put music and it'd be like a stream in a river, and now it's a waterfall. Mm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think it's great that people are creating stuff. Yeah. I think it's fantastic that people and and uh, and I also believe that the creams are just rise to the top. Um, and 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 I was talking to someone about because I was in, I was in a band that was deeply unsuccessful. We had a lovely bunch of guys, and we had a really brilliant time. They're still my they're still my best friends. And Adam, my manager, was the manager of the band, but. We were talking about the other day, and the thing that we didn't have that people have now is is an awareness of their own success or lack of it. So even though we were playing in Portsmouth to no one at all, we thought that maybe someone hadn't discovered us yet. But now, the unfortunate thing about social media is you have a gauge of how popular you are. <laughs> yes. You know, you can live in this bubble as a band as we did for, for part of the 90s, where go, we're going to be the biggest band ever. What were, you, what were you called? We were called Velvet Jones, we were called. But we're never going to be... We never realized, even you know, you get uh, you know some good write-ups in some magazines, or you know, we got on top of the pops too, uh, you know, all that we got to a certain stage, we were signed, also, but it wasn't like anyone really particularly liked us very much. That was the honesty, but we didn't know that. Where now you know that, does that make sense? Yes, it does. It's a different yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. It makes it makes musicians very 
wary of it all. But it you know, also what? makes musicians lie a lot more. I remember when MySpace came out. MySpace came out, I remember when we were doing, when I was mixing Love album, funny yeah, enough. I remember that. Was that 2005? No, MySpace was... Uh, uh, Fourth. Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe. And all my friends who are musicians, which a lot of them are musicians, and we'd all slag off the Britney Spears of this world mm. at that stage. Like writing their profiles in MySpace, lying and touching up photographs way more than most record companies would do. It's funny. <laughs> it's a different social media kind of makes it sort of blurs the line between what's real and what what isn't. Doesn't yeah, it? So those filters again. Yeah, obviously, I was talking to my thirteen-year-old daughter about it yesterday about how you know someone gets twenty, someone got you know someone usually got twenty-five thousand views on TikTok, and I was talking about whether that was important or not. And to her, it was. To her, it was important. Yeah. And I just thought, well, you know, you've got to be careful about where this goes. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway. Well, I've been talking to a couple of managers recently, and, and they're very concerned, wary of, of the effect of all this social media on the, on the mental health of, of our musicians. Because you get 25,000 people responding to an to a Instagram post. 25,000 people are not all going to be nice. You get an awful lot of negativity yeah. flows your way. Yeah. And also... The last post I did got 150,000. Yeah. Are we losing popularity? Yes. So it, it's it's a brilliant indicator, but the trouble is those indicators can well, can drive neurosis well, as well. My old man who was who was you know even up to the age you know the at the age of 90 was a pretty bright spark and very thoughtful about stuff. Knew nothing about the world of social media, but he, he did say to me, he goes, "Isn't there quite a big difference between pressing something that you like and actually liking it?" And I was like, yeah. I mean, it's a really good point. It's like, you know, I said to my daughter last night in the car, I said, you know, there is a difference though, Eva, between liking something and hitting like. And she goes, yeah, I guess there is. I, I like everything. I press like to most things I see. I went, do you like them? She goes, no. I went, so be careful when someone, when you say someone's got 10,000 likes. She goes, I guess that's true. And it's, it is, it's, isn't it? It'll all level out. It will. It's the Wild yeah. West at the moment. Yeah, we're all, Still, we're, we're all idiots basically. And, yeah. and, and, and we can be judgmental, but you know, well, well I'm, that, I'm, no, I'm, a... I'm the biggest idiot. Yeah, you about to ask me a question? Or? No, I was gonna, I was gonna sort of wrap wrap things up in a in a in a. You're gonna wrap semi <laughs> with a hip. Um, can hip, I ask you a hip, really hip. a really stupid what if question? Given yeah. that we're all idiots, and so I yeah. can get away with it. What if John Lennon hadn't died? Would they? Do you think they would have reformed somehow? Sometime? I wonder about this. Actually, I do yeah. ask this. I, I think about this quite a lot because the work I do. Um, I thought I wonder whether I'd actually be doing it for a start if John Lennon was alive. Um, whether he'd just go, what's the point in all of this? It's just stupid. <laughs> uh, you know, which I would I completely respect, yeah. by the way. Um, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think that the, 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 the sad thing with this and the, the tragic thing about John is that, you know, no one knows. But my dad, for instance, had a had a strange relationship. My dad and John were incredibly close. I mean, A, because he was kind of the leader of the Beatles to begin with. And they went on holiday together in 19... With my mum, they went on holiday in 1964. They went skiing together. I was I found that out earlier yeah. this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they were really close. And then John became more distant and, and felt like my dad became not very cool and wanted to hang out with cooler people. My dad probably wasn't that cool, you know. And then by the end of the Beatles, and certainly by the breakup, he was pretty mean about both Paul and my dad, about, you know, them sort of ruining the Beatles' music and it becoming too pompous and it's all about rock and roll and all this sort of stuff. And he did the famous sort of 
interview for, I think, for Playboy magazine yeah. where he was pretty mean about my dad. And they didn't talk for a long time. There was no, I didn't, you know, he wasn't around. Um, and then just before he died, he contacted my dad and my dad went and had dinner with him. Um, what, over in New York? In the, the, the Dakota building, oh, right. yeah. And Yoko went out and left the two of them to it and they talked about everything they talked about. My dad said, you know, you said some pretty horrible things about me. And he goes, I was high. You know, what you, what you, and, and, you know, and, and John also said to him, you know, you know, I wish we could um, go back and record things properly next time. I said, you must be mad. I mean, how about Strawberry Fields? He goes, God, especially Strawberry Fields. No. Um, yeah, this is brilliant. Um, but they talked about working together. They talked about doing a bunch of things. Um, and then he, you know, we came back. And I remember he when he got shot. Um, and so there was a, there was a redemption yeah. um, to John that happened. And he was a, you know, he was quite a tricky character. You know, the same man that was talking about peace and love as the same man that would famously, I once heard a story about him kicking a man in the face while on stage in Hamburg so he was shutting up Cynthia. Um, and I remember having dinner with Yoko in, in after the love show in Vegas and she said, it's a pity that John never knew you. And I said, why? And he goes, I think he'd have liked you. He'd liked you, he'd liked you the fact you're, you're funny or something like that, she said. And I think that he would have been, I think he would have either consistently taken the piss out of Paul and gone and done something weird, or they probably would at some point have got together. I think there's no doubt that Paul really misses John mm. in, in lots of ways because he was such a genius. And so is Paul. And Paul's never found... It's like he's never found that person that could go, wait a second, I can do this better than you. Because Paul's actually really good. Yeah. You know, he's a really, 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 really good musician. My dad always said he was the best musician he's ever recorded. My dad's recorded Ella Fitzgerald and Stan Getz and all this, but he always said that Paul was the, the, the one person. And John was probably the best instinctive musician he's ever worked Temperamentally, with. they were very different, weren't they? Yeah, but they they could do things that the others couldn't worked, do. Yeah. And, they, and yeah. they hated that as well. You know, they constantly tried to do what the other person was doing. Mm. You know, as John famous said, I can't imagine anyone whistling Iron the Walrus in a Spanish restaurant restaurant, you know. You know, and alluding to Hey Jude or something like that. But John, you know, would want to try and write a Hey Jude. Yeah. I think that they would have I think they would have certainly I think they'd have found that they had more in common. And that whole era is interesting. Growing up in that era post, the Beatles are a really dirty word in my household when I was growing up because that was then, in the same way that Dave's friend wouldn't listen to them in a barbecue. That was, that was, that was then, and this is now. And, and it's the same with Paul as well. He had that attitude. And my dad certainly had that attitude. Um, and now, um, so when my father, before he died, he did realize it was the best work he'd done. And I think Paul probably realizes that despite his extraordinary enthusiasm and innovation and energy, probably his peak was was that period with John. And that's something to be celebrated because let's face it, it's a peak that none of us have, none of us are really going to reach, yeah. reach or even dream of. Yeah. Um, so I think John would have been the same. 
Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think those, those years, something happened in the 60s. It's almost like the Reformation. You know, the world before the 60s, the world after the 60s is completely different. The yeah. way, way we dress and look and our attitudes. And that, that music is just an amazing artistic peak. I mean, it's Mozart. It's, yeah. it's, it's at a level that very few human beings, and I'm, I bet they must have had such a strong bond from going through it together. You know, you must miss that bond. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what it is. I mean, that's what Paul says. He goes, you know, that all these books are written, and all of this, you know, even people like me who wasn't even born get asked to talk about the Beatles. You know, sorry, no, no, that's that's all right. <laughs> I, 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 I can only talk about what we're doing I, in a postmodernist way about no, but uh, remixes. But, and, but the funny yeah. thing is, is I get asked to write liner notes about an album that I wasn't born when it came out. You yeah. know, and and the Beatles asked me. And I'm thinking, and then Paul has to. I'm thinking, you know. What do I, you know, how how embarrassing is that? But you, I mean, I do, I have a sort of sensibility about what's going on because I have listened to all the tapes and work on the records. But as Paul says, only there was only four of them, and that was it, and no one else knows what was going on. And he, I remember him saying to me, he goes, "The funny thing is, is we didn't even know what happened." Like you know, he goes, "I remember we went to go and see when the the great meal, the great meeting with Elvis," and. uh they, I think they had a big reefer in the car and they went to go and visit him and there's this great, the Beatles meet Elvis and they went into his house and he goes, and Priscilla answered the door and she's a very, very attractive woman. And he goes, he said, the funny thing was is that the, later that evening they were trying to work out, they were discussing how, you know, she, how attractive she was but they all had her wearing different clothes. Like, as I thought she was wearing like a gingham dress he goes, Ringo thought she was wearing a tiara. <laughs> and it's that thing. He goes, he goes, so if we can't remember no, what happened yeah. when we met, met Elvis, how can anyone else write about it? I mean, that's a, and that's a really good example. It's like, you know, why we can't remember what we did last Tuesday. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so and so it is funny when you I guess I guess it must be deeply frustrating for for them, you know, the that's it happens with life that if you lose your friends, you you don't have those reference points. But then to hear other people who weren't even there or had nothing to do with it regurgitate their reference points for them must be really weird. Mm. Brilliant. I have enjoyed every second of that. Oh, Thank good. You so much. Oh, you're welcome. Too. It's great Absolutely to see you guys. You come and use this place as, a, as your recording booth from now on. Absolutely. I think, I think driving up here from London every yeah. Friday afternoon yeah. would be brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's been a real treat. Yeah. So thank you for taking oh, the time. Thank you, thank, thank you, you guys. Really Pleasure to see you both. Brilliant. Oh yeah. well, good luck with everything. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye. The sound of the hound was edited by Andy Hetherington. For more details on the topics discussed in this episode, visit soundofthehound.com or follow us on Twitter on at the sound of the H1 or on Instagram on The Sound of the Hound.